Welcome to the Abundant Edge Podcast. You're in the right place for all things regenerative living, ecological restoration, permaculture, and natural building. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher. In this show, it's my job to interview leaders, innovators, and rebels on the cutting edge of their fields as we look for solutions to our generation's most urgent challenges and share these techniques and information so that you can join us in creating a healthy and abundant world for everyone. So let's get started. Without a doubt, the most important mission of our lifetimes will be regenerating this planet and creating a new culture based on care and stewardship for all life. But it can be hard to know where to start. After more than 150 episodes of speaking to leaders and innovators in the regenerative fields around the world, and working with clients and organizations to help them reach their regenerative goals, I've compiled many lists of essential skills and steps that anyone can take today to begin their journey towards a brighter future for themselves their families and communities, and for the ecosystems that support them. Every two weeks, I'll send you a new regenerative skill that you can develop and expand on in your own life right away. What's more is that I'm creating a community of skill builders like you who are sharing their results and stories of success to inspire you towards greater action. You can sign up right now in the show notes for this episode or on the homepage at AbundantEdge.com. Start your week off right by building your skills for a regenerative future. All right, welcome back, everybody. Now, this week is going to tie in perfectly with last week's interview with Zach Weiss about building ponds and water harvesting features. Now, I spoke with David Spicer, who is affectionately known as Doc Spice, an accomplished permaculture designer who has specialized in earthworks installation. Now, having taught and worked on various projects extensively in Australia and internationally in places like Morocco, Jordan, Palestine, and New Caledonia, Doc has worked in a broad array of different soil types, topographies, and climate zones too. Now he's also a valued member of the Permaculture Sustainable Consulting Team headed up by Jeff Lawton and is registered as teacher number five with the Permaculture Research Institute of Australia. Now Doc is a master of practical and logical mainframe permaculture design and he has pioneered the design of water harvesting and storage earthworks which frames all regenerative farming. In this episode specifically, we talk about why it's so important to invest early on a project to get your earthworks right because of what it can mean for the health of your land. Doc also shares some insights on his personal design process and what he looks for in a landscape to give him clues as to the most effective interventions on the form of the land. We also cover some of the risks of improperly installed features, the need to draw from as many sources of knowledge as possible, And he also gives some valuable advice for people who are new to Earthworks on how to get started. Now I've put some pictures of the projects that Doc has done to help to illustrate some of the concepts and techniques that he talks about. So don't forget to check out these along with further links on the show notes in this episode on the website. And now I'll hand things over to Doc Spice. Hey Doc, thanks so much for making time today for being on the podcast. It's really a pleasure to finally speak to you. I've followed your work for a while. How are you doing in Australia at the moment? Uh, good, mate. In the middle of winter, but I'm sitting, sitting on a nice uh, rocket mass heater, so I've got warm bones. Oh, perfect. That's nice, man. Those things are fantastic. I got to get back and do another interview about those things. Um, I got, I just got a new book uh, on rocket mass heaters from uh, Erica Weisner and Ernie Weisner mm-hmm. called The Rocket Mass Heater Builder's Guide. It's a really good volume. I recommend it. How's that one performing for you? Did you build it yourself? 
Yeah, I built it myself. I, I actually added a, the firebox to it, like the batch box sort of mass heaters. But um, look, it's incredible. It's transformed the house. It's reduced our, you know, firewood costs by 40%, 50%, you know, depending on the year and the wood quality. But it's just incredible. We love it. Yeah, so you added on the batch box feature. See, I started doing that when I was doing stoves in Guatemala, and it makes a really big difference, doesn't it? It does in the sort of management of it. You know, you can, yeah, you can put more wood in. And, you don't have and to constantly be attending it. Exactly, mate, exactly. Yeah. It's more functional, more practical. But, you know, it's, uh, it's incredible, you know. <laughs> well, look, I would love to talk uh, rocket mass heaters with you this whole time. But what do you say we get to what you're Absolutely. best known for, which is earthworks and landscape transformation? Now, yep. I know that landform is the second highest category on the scale of permanence. And regular listeners to this podcast will have heard me talk about the scale of permanence quite a bit. But my question for you is, why is it so important to invest early and really get it right with the landform aspect as far as the health of your land as you start to move forward with your design? Um, well, you know, I, I suppose I see what I do and any sort of manipulating landforms, because that's what I do basically, is, you know, I try to do the smallest amount of work for the, the greatest good. And I see that as, or I like to explain it, as you're building the bones of the system. Um, and then all the living flesh is the muscle and, you know, the skin, etc. Um, and that's how I see earthworks. But sort of reading the landscape is really the first sort of critical point. Observation, I think, is the most important skill set if you want to uh, transform landscape in, in particularly in an earthworks manner. You, you need to develop your observation skills. To look at land, to look at uh, you know the shape of it, erosion patterns, um, etc. To to work out what's going on, what's the the, e, the the most economical fix for you know for the bang for your buck that you can do, because everything I do costs a lot of money when you're dealing with heavy machinery, so you've got to be try to be quite precise um, with your movements. Yeah, and I've heard that echoed from a lot of people, especially because it is so high on that scale of permanence. We're dealing with things that are quite difficult to make any real change on without larger equipment or without a ton of manpower. And, you know, you're talking about the observation process, and there's a lot of things on the landscape that you need to take into account before you start going in and doing some work. Tell me, how do you assess a new site for its water harvesting potential? What are some of the things that you look for first? Well, absolutely one I look for is any roads above the site because if you can get that, that is absolute gold in, uh, you know, the runoff events coming off sealed roads particularly. Um, I'm, yeah, I'm looking at yeah, where is sort of, you know, is there any neighbouring properties that run in? You know, where's the biggest catchment coming in from the different valleys? Uh, you've got to look at also landscape and, you know, what, what was this, how was the site treated, um, you know, has it got rock formations, you know, and even uh, I've been working on a site in Jinjalik. Now, that's it's an, it's quite big a country in that it's from the valley floor to the ridge at 600 metres and almost on a, 
uh, you know, 70% sort of grey, like it's incredibly steep country, but rock formations has made a big difference in its shale country. But if the rock strata standing up, it actually builds quite incredible fertile soil and uh, very little runoff. But as soon as the rock strata changes, everything just sheds off. And that's in the sections that the water's shedding off, we're doing a lot of um, shock, uh, what I call shock absorber work in, in putting water into a swale system, um, really so it could just take its energy out and then passively overflow a spillway. Um, and, and also when you do that, you're allowed to deposit, uh, you know, to become a deposition system and build soil and bank the water. Um, yeah, like I think, you know, is the forest, is the, the site forested? Uh, what are the land practices above the site, you know, in the water catchment, you know? What are the farmers doing above it is a big one to think about. Um, you know, in Australia, we've got to think that, you know, we in February we had horrendous fires and on this site in Gingelic, um, the, the fire went through. So there's an incredible amount of material that moves through these landscapes after the fire and some big rain events. So we've had a lot of work to do there. Um, but at the same time, the, the site, the client's been doing holistic uh, grazing for four years and uh, there's still a, almost an inch of organic matter on the soil uh, after the fire had passed in certain places you know, as a testament to um, the, the benefits of these grazing systems. Um, but also how resilient nature is. I always like to say we only got to take one step in the right direction, nature takes ten. And, and I've seen that so many times. And often that can be, you know, planting the water or, or you know, interacting livestock or, you know, anything like that in a positive manner. Yeah, and like you said, so we're talking a lot about water systems when we're dealing with earthworks because that's often the main intention of why yeah. someone would bring in heavy machinery and make adjustments in the land but let's talk about the full range of what a properly planned and implemented earthworks project kind of has the potential to do in transforming a landscape, both including water catchment and any of the other services that you've been able to do with this type of work. Yeah, look, I think um, basically we've got to become human beavers. Uh, you know, um, when we, I think like, yes, we can bring in, well, first we've got to have a, an observation on the landscape, look at the rain event, look where the water's moving on the site. Um, and, you know, there's a whole host of indicators to that too. Like, is there, has there been any, you know, organic debris put up in trees or on fence lines? Because that's an indicator. Is there, you know, is there any steps in the country? Slump country you have to worry about, you know, like dispersive clays. And again, that's observation because you can look at the profile um, and see that that doesn't quite look right. Um, but we need to start at the top and slowly impound the water. Now, obviously, the most economical place is the soil. So if we can bank it in the soil, then we've spent the least amount of time, money and energy um, often uh, to store that water. Now, if we store that water high and, you know, we'll, we'll eventually be create new springs, um, and I've seen that across so many sites when we bank the water up. And it doesn't have to be uh, with earthworks, but just good uh, land management. Even take a degraded forest and start cycling that down, um, the lesser quality 
species in that forest and start cycling that down on a contoured form or a key line form, you're going to start banking huge amounts of water in that. So it's like water retention doesn't have to be just about earth, uh, big scale earthworks too. Um, it's surprising what can be achieved uh, by hand, you know, when it comes to earthworks and just planting that water. And Brad Lancaster's been incredible in leading that sort of path for years, really. You know, he's one of my sort of heroes, I suppose, like, you know, and such a gentle guy. And so I think, you know, we need to, you know, like I come into this game as from a permaculturist perspective and we need not to be permaculturist. Um, I, I sort of really try seriously to always take on new information and if I see something that works, I add it uh, to the toolkit. Um, you know, like in Australia, we have Peter Andrews doing natural sequence farming which is great, but that's only for the floodplains, you know, whereas we need to apply, you know, we wouldn't need to water, force water out onto ridge points to rehydrate them. Um, so, you know, there's, there's so many uh, from large-scale to small-scale scenarios that we can take on to hold more water in the landscape. Uh, and, and it's just, it takes just a little bit of will and a little bit of knowledge and trial and error, you know, we need to, uh, our education system in the Western world, particularly I think, um, you know, we've, they've knocked innovation out of us and we're, we're scared to fail. Whereas, so you don't want to fail definitely on large scale earthworks and that's where laser levels and surveying is critical before earthworks, during and after. Um, but, uh, you know, like the smaller scale stuff is stuff to really play with and build up your confidence and your understanding. Water is very easy to work with. You know, I don't see myself as, you know, uh, unique in my smartness for what I do. I don't. I just understand that water, if you hold water on level or you put a slight fall on it, but if you run it in storage, it's just a matter of playing with heights to get water to go where you want. Uh, I can get water to run into a dam and then back flood up. And that's just in relation to heights, you know, by surveying, you know. Um, so, uh, you know, I really... Yeah, it's good like that. Like water is very predictable. It very rarely does anything that you couldn't have planned for. Yeah, yeah. In a, in a water harvesting storage uh, in the landscape, certainly when it becomes to sort of, you know, creek systems, well, they're more volatile. And, you know, I've played with that sort of leaky weir idea, but I'm certainly not an expert on that. Like, you know, I suppose I've become more knowledgeable on, you know, actual jumping on the machine, like doing the design, jumping on the machine and, and actually doing the work. And I've learnt a lot by doing the work myself on the excavator. Um, it's a bit bone rattling. Uh, it's hard work. And, uh, but, you know, the, the results are, are quite incredible, you know. And the work I've done in Morocco has been, for me, very rewarding. Um, one, one of the projects I've worked on was in the High Atlas. And so we only had a JCB and we'd done a, a swale as a shock absorber. So reading the landscape, it was like 60 degree slope coming down to the school and it flooded on a 250 mil rain fall like per annum. Um, but the school was flooded, which is kind of hard to believe in a 250 mil rainfall you know, uh, yearly event, like over the annual year. Um, but, like, by doing that and, and, and also doing smaller scale stuff, there's kids that are actually taking that 
skill set to their own farms. And that is just fantastic. Mm-hmm. That is fantastic. By demonstration, you know, the word educate in Latin means to, to lead out, to demonstrate the way. And I think that's the most important thing that we can do. We can talk all we want, but we really need to start demonstrating and showing people how simple what we do is, um, and it's fun, you know, and it's so powerful uh, to, to build life systems. Because that's what we're doing. Yeah, we're building life is. systems. You know, and, and we're just becoming, we're coming in as the initiator and just a traffic director, really, like pruning a tree. It's just steering traffic. And I think looking at a whole system, looking at the overall site, is like steering traffic. Now, if you start with water and you work out where the water's going, where you can store the water, where you can move the water, um, and then that gives you your bones or your structures and you can put your roads on and your structure position and your fence layout or your forestry layout. It really, for me, what earthworks, and I think the simple thing about them does, once you put an earthworks layer on your site, it designs itself because it already starts to cut it into Mm. sections. You know, you start to know, oh, that's zone. Right, right. That's zone four, that's forestry, you know what I mean? Like that's, it really starts to divide land up and it's so much easier for people to manage, I think, uh, because particularly people new to farming, not necessarily old farmers, but people new to farming, homesteading, all that. When you look at a big space with no trees on it and it's a big blank canvas, it's really hard to envision what is possible and where to stop and start. And I think the most powerful things that right. good earthworks can do is that sections up the land. Now, Mark Shepherd, I was watching a podcast the other day of Mark and he's given a key line presentation and he talks about this sweet spot, which I absolutely agree with him because I'm finding the more design work I do, there's this sweet spot often in the middle of the site, depending on topography and shape, you know. Um, but if we do our research and we, we can purchase a property with a bit of topography, um, then you can find this sweet spot that it's the least amount of earthworks for the greatest amount of water harvesting and often storage potential. Uh, Whether that could be a gradient road or I'm starting to actually do a lot more terracing in the form of swales. Uh, So they're on level, but they're in the form of a terrace with a tilt on them. Uh, So they're almost up, uh, you know, three, four hundred mil in the freeboard. Uh, So on the bottom end, bottom side of the terrace is 400 millimetres higher than the back uh, of the terrace. So that's where the water sits, like a swale. But I'm just finding, I'm evolving my system because I'm finding the terrace, this terrace form is easier to maintain over time than the classic swale form, you know. Um, but I'm also doing a lot. Yeah, I could definitely see that. Yeah, no, they really are. I'm really finding that. So, you know, even though I come in as a permaculturist and, you know, I just see, like, Zach Weezer's work, you know, the elemental ecology, ecosystems. Like, it's just fantastic stuff. And you've got to go, wow, that works. Peter Andrews Systems works. You know, Brad Lancaster's, Mark Shepard's, Darren Doherty's, you know. We, we just, we need to uh, collect as much, you know, stuff that we gel with and just try it on small scale and build our confidence to, to go out in big scales. Um, you know, start small, make small mistakes is a big thing. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's that's classic and very good advice. And one of the things that you mentioned just a minute ago about building these skills and adding more of them from the toolboxes of as wide of a, uh, I guess, spread of learning and pedagogies as you can really helps to continue the innovation process. And I'm wondering, in all of this time that you've been learning and practicing these types of designs and implementing them, what are some of the most useful skills that you end up using all of the time and that are fairly easy for someone else to pick up? Uh, <laughs> um, Assuming that there's some overlap on those because you might be using pretty complex skills. No, <laughs> no, I'm not. No, I think, like, obs honestly, observation. Observation. Read landscapes. You know, that is a real big thing. Like, walk, the, the you know, as... Uh, uh, Warren Brush would say, walk the water, you know. Um, you need to, to get in the water's mind. Think about, don't just think about the earthworks aspect because what you, if you're not careful, you, you cut the property off. You know what I mean? You can't access it once you put in, whether it's swales or gradient roads, you know, you've got a park across there, but you can't go up the slope. So you've got to think about access, think about fence layering, um, you know, I, I always advise do a little bit and then come back and do more. It might cost you more for the transport, but you've got to allow, you know, the system to evolve. Bill said, let your site demonstrate its evolution. Um, you know, and, and that's really true. Like, but I think observation, honestly, observation, get a shovel, learn how to move a bit of earth, you know, um, play with small systems, like play with stormwater, uh, yeah, get as many – like, I'm very unique. I suppose I've been lucky or, you know, in some ways I grew up on a farm. I worked in horticulture. I worked in forestry. I worked in the building industry, a bit of steel fabrication, forestry, before I come to permaculture, you know, before I was even in, into, interested in it. So I was very lucky to have a broad uh, array of skill sets. Try to get some practical experience on uh, – working systems, working tree systems, you know, because if you're designing, you need to design with, you know, the evolution of tree systems, spacing, access. And that's where Darren does such a fantastic job in the regarian system, you know, uh, keeping it quite simple. Um, adapt, you know, be adaptive. Don't, don't, if you've designed something, don't be egotistical and go, I can't change that because you're ego, you know. Be a bit humble. Uh, yeah. I don't know, mate. Try. We need people to get out there and bloody try, you know, because, you know, Bill said, yeah, get out there and try because we can't do a worse job. Well, that's true to an extent, certainly, you know. But we need to become more active <laughs> and demonstrate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Put these things into practice and get away from the theory and the, uh, the book learning absolutely. and actually get your hands dirty. Yeah. No, look, I, you know, I, yeah. I'd like to get myself into a position where I'd, I could take on people to train them because I have people asking me to come on site. Um, so, and, and evolution, because I know we need them. I know we need people with this skill set. And I really think you need to get, try to apprentice yourself to someone for the training because there's no substitute for experience. You know, even if it's, if you want to work with machine, heavy machinery, um, you know, try to jump on and operate because what that does, 
if you want to work with Earthworks, it gives you a realisation, is that design reality or not? Because it's too easy to draw a pretty picture and go, let's do that, but until you actually get on the ground and start implementing it or you come from an operator's perspective and go, oh, wow, that's going to be really costly because, you know, you've got to cut so much out of there to get that. Like, uh, be a bit pragmatic. Think of people's dollar because everything we do with heavy machinery is costly. So we need to try to minimise the, the amount of time and cubic metres of earth moved for impact, for water stored is the big one. Just question that each time you're doing that. You know, uh, am I putting right. it... Are you doing it to do it or are you doing it with a real goal? Exactly, mate. No, having exactly. the, the desired effect. Yeah, and that's why, like I say, this mainframe concept, because if you can get a mainframe, and that's if you think of ridge to valley floor, if you can get something across the top of the ridge line before it starts getting steep and something through the mid-slope picking up the key point, um, and whether that's swale, gradient road, whatever, with dam storage, and then something in the bottom, that's enough to kick your system off. And you can always put in more when you do your observation and have more experience with that site. But, you know, you, there's no point in putting in swale, swale, swale. Why? You know, why not just rip it? Yes, put in swales if you want to harvest water to somewhere. But if you just want to bank the water, it could be other options other than bringing in heavy machinery. These days, I rarely put in a swale uh, as, a, as an individual unit. I, I'll put in a swale as a back flood uh, swale, so it's connected to a dam. So the, swale, the dam has to fill from the swale before the swale fills up. Okay? So I'll, I will do that. Right. Um, but I'll rarely put in a swale just to put in a swale because unless I want to pick water up, bring it around the ridge and drop it off again unless I want to direct water, you know, but because there's other options, more economic options for people to impound water. And, you know, first we have to look at the soil and we have to, what can we do to the soil to, to open it up um, to, uh, to take the water? You know, we always need to be asking these questions, in my opinion. Yeah, I completely agree. And I'm really glad that you brought up swales because it's become sort of this controversial thing, especially in permaculture circles, where some people think that swales kind of broadly apply to just about any landscape mm -hmm. and other people who steer away from them and really try and tell people like, look, there's a lot of other options. Swales are effective in certain contexts, but not others. Do you think that it's an essential feature for water harvesting or are there situations where it definitely shouldn't be used? Uh, yeah, certainly situations where it shouldn't be used and it's not essential for water harvesting. You can do water harvesting by diversion drains. You can do water harvesting by gradient roads, which are bloody incredible at actually directing water uh, to storage. Um, so, yeah, there's, there's a whole host of uh, things that you can do before you put in a swale. And then, and then you want to ask too, like, how many swales do I need? Do I only need one swale? Because I only want to take that water and I want to bring it around to that dam, you know? Uh, yeah, so they're not always relevant. Don't get swale-centric. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a big thing. I see it used often as like this, this indication of the pedagogy of permaculture and the rigidity of certain, certain people's thinking around 
because it's in the permaculture manual or because it was a teaching of Bill Mollison, it is the only way to go. And I really like your approach. And, uh, you know, I've spoken to Darren a few times and quite a few other people who are like, yeah, I mean, those are those are all good things. But we've learned a lot since then. And there's a lot of new tools and applications and innovations that should be considered now that we have more information and we've got more experience as as a community in applying these techniques and these strategies over a lot of different contexts now. Absolutely, mate. Spot on. Thank you. Yeah. And and this is why I take what I do as a as an evolu- ev- evolutionary approach. I'm, you know, I'm, I see myself as still learning, um, you know, because I'm looking at, you know, I still watch Earth Movers work because I'm like, oh, yeah, they're doing that. Oh, that's interesting. You know, I still, I'm generally interested in learning. Um and I think hybridization of all these different uh, approaches uh, in, in different contexts is a fantastic thing. You know, it, it, you know I, I actually give my work a, a form of what I call functional art, you know, um, because I think it's sure. beautiful. Yeah. You know, I do, and it's functional, you know, and I pride myself when I'm doing the work on myself on a machine is I want to have a finished product that blends into the landscape that doesn't actually take much longer um, but, you know, it's beautiful, but it's also got to be functional, you know. Uh, and I'm blending it with different approaches, you know, uh, from, from a multitude of teachers. Um, and I think we have to take on this, this approach of opening our minds. Again, it comes back to observation, you know. Look, oh, wow, that works. Why wouldn't I use that, you know? Um, that's that, that's certainly my approach, and I, I want to continue with that approach um, uh, until you know I'm an old man. I can't walk around too much, but yeah, basically, yeah. <laughs> no, I'm right there with you. I completely agree. Like the real joy in this for me as well is that it's a constant learning process. Mm-hmm. No matter how good you get, no matter how much experience you build, you never know the whole picture. You can never understand a living system in all of its complexity. And the challenge then is just to keep paying attention and to constantly be observing to see, you know, what what you've missed or what continues to evolve. And, you know, it always manages to do so in ways that you could have never entirely predicted because of all of those variables and elements and nuances and living systems that I just find fascinating as well. Totally agree, mate. Totally agree. I mean, Bill, Bill Molson said, how can you study man when you study a hermit? You know, you can't, if you study something in isolation, it's going to be different because it has all these other influences in its natural environment. So, you know, um, we, we've got to continue learning. Like, we've got to be open. Try not to get our ego too big. Uh, keep a bit humble um, is, is my advice, and you, you'll go a long way, you know, as my mum would say, have manners, which is another good thing. Um, but, yeah, look, you know, be open because there's so much stuff, you know. I got root last... In, in December, I went to India um, <clears throat> for a quick consultancy and, you know, I've seen the work that an NGO in India was doing. Now, their work was pretty rough in, in you know, our sort of standards, like the finished product, you know, not much topsoil or, or no topsoil sort of reapplied or anything like that. Like, but the effects were absolutely profound, you know, when we started doing that broader watershed restoration, you know, they... They just transformed the local village's life. And I, I was in awe of their work. You know, I went there as a specialist, but I can't criticise anything what 
you know, anything they've done because it was just bloody incredible, you know. There's, there's a few details that I, that I pointed out that you, you could do, but, you know, overall, like, my God, you know, I was just humbled, you know, at the scale of what these guys achieved and it was just incredible. And I think we've got to keep humble. You know, humble you learn because if you're humble, you're looking, you're observing without prejudice, I think is a big one. Yeah. Yeah. I completely agree. Now I've got one more technical question because I think it's one of the things that people often look, overlook when they're thinking about earthworks and you know changing the landscape a bit. Is it's usually done with the context of trying to, I guess, hold and store and redirect more water. But there are quite a few contexts in which the the larger issue is is inundation and flooding. And yep. where drainage is actually more of a pressing challenge than harvesting. Yeah. Can you talk about your experience with working on drainage and making sure that water doesn't become an erosive force? Yeah. Um, well, look, I actually I haven't done a lot of work on really flat country, um, but I am just started talking to communicating with a client that he's got 20 acres and there's about a 200 mil fall over it. So, but again, you know, it's just a matter of playing with heights. You can still drain the landscape uh, and move water with a swale or a drain as long as you've, you've set your heights up right um, that you can still manipulate it, you know. As long as one side, one end's higher than the other, of course you can push water and terraform to create higher spots or, or you know, use a malboard plough or something simple, you know, economic. Get out there with your shovel. You can still manipulate the water, and just when you come to the to the point where it exits, you know, I often if I'm putting in a diversion drain, I think it's a good idea to actually pull that diversion drain up about ten meters off the dam or something, and actually make it into a swale, because then that actually creates a deposition system, so it drops its silt load. So as soon as you take running water and you drop it into still water, there goes all this energy. And that can just passively mm. sheet over some spillway, which could be rock armoured if you're worried about volumes of water coming in. Like Warren Brush does a lot of rock armouring on the spillways of his work. Um, and that's fine, you know, if you've got the rock uh, resource around. Um, but that's taken, taken running water and dropping water, the running water into a body of water that could be a silt trap like a deposition system, uh, as soon as that running water hits water, there's its energy gone. It's dissipated. It's like them, but like the Zuni bowls, you know, they go off that spiral sort of vortex, but it's about water hitting water and dissipating the energy. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, you know, some, you, some wild examples for sure. Um, and, you know, so as soon as, as soon as your water's, you know, passive, uh, then then you put it over a spillway, a level spillway, um, and that could be, you know, 10 metres long. And you could only have, you know, an inch or 25 mil of water sheeting over that at, you know, incredible, you know, gentle uh, flow but a lot of volume because it's long and it's level. So you've dissipated the energy, you've dissipated it, you've just split it up. Yeah. So that's pretty easy, and that's why I say water is easy to work with if you respect it like that, you know, bring it in, 
allow it to, to deposit its load, you know, what it's carrying, store it if you want. When it exits, you just put it over something level so it's passive. Yeah, for sure. And then you don't have any problems, you know. A, a, a vegetated area, if you can sh uh, shed water into a vegetated area over, a, you know, a 10-metre distance or something like that or, you know, 30 feet or something like that, then, then you know, all the energy is taken out. You won't even bend the grass over. Uh, it's, it's well, quite... so let's talk about some of the risks if you get it wrong. Yep. Are there some inherent risks or dangers if uh, if you don't know what you're doing and start messing around with earthworks? Of course. Uh, have you seen anything, you know, catastrophic happen? Uh, look, you know, dams do blow out, absolutely. So that's the, the dam wall itself. Um, you know, if that's not constructed right, if that's not if they don't actually have what's called a freeboard, so from the where the water sits in the dam to the top of the dam wall itself, um, if there's not much freeboard and you get a big rain event, water goes over the wall, makes a small incision that keeps going, that can blow out. And that can be, you know, hundreds and hundreds of cubic metres of uh, soil, hopefully clay, but um, soil moving down in into in someone else's property or your property and you know you can't get that material back so there are dangers swales and and terrace and things like that well depending on the volume of water you're picking up if they blow out it's not really that much of a drama um you know you can shovel shovel a wheelbarrow load of material back in there but when you're dealing with dams diversion drains running water you have to you know, stay on a gentle grade. Don't be greedy um, because, you know, you start running water on a too steep of a grade, it's going to start to erode. Different soil types, particularly like granite soils uh, with quite big quartz crystals is, is quite, is really abrasive country. So you've got to be a bit careful about that. Um, even roads, you know, roads, putting in roads. You think you're doing the right thing putting in a road. Well, you have to be careful about where you put the road in because, Ideally, we use them as road water harvesters, you know, to direct water or, you know, harvest water to a dam or something like that. But if we've got to go up a ridge or, you know, around the slope, we just need to be conscious that that's going to pick up water and run. And where does that water go is what you've got to think. It's always a relationship of hardware to software, as our mate Jeffrey Lawton would say, who's kind of swale-centric. And hopefully he might hear me on that one, but I'll stir him up because that's all right. Anyway, um, yeah, so, like, you know, you've got to have a bit of humour in life, mate. Um, yeah, like, you know, you've got to... Uh, there's, a, there's a lot of water coming off roads and you've got to be, you know, can think about that. Where does that water go? Ideally, we want to put it into some sort of storage because it's water coming off at speed as well um, that we have to think about. Uh, for just, you know, if you understand earthworks, respect the laser, you know, you respect your levels... Uh, as long as you give it adequate freeboard and you've got a, a decent spillway, then a lot of the time uh, everything's okay. You know, I have seen swales in dispersive clay country um, and they've worked. There's no tunnel erosion in that, but I have seen tunnel erosion in with swales in dispersive clays as well. So, um, you know, but I wouldn't certainly advise to put swales in dispersive clay country. Um, but, you know, that's probably one of your big things to think about, some sort of slip country, uh, you know, rock strata, uh, you know, have you got a big, you know, soil plume sitting on a big sheet of rock? Is it, if you're saturated, is it going to slip? 
is, is a thing to think about. Uh, and, you know, that's why Darren Doherty or someone like that would advise uh, a geotechnician to, to do work before uh, any um, preliminary, you know, earthworks to understand the geology. You know, you should, you should be doing soil tests. Um, look, over time, you know, uh, depending on the client, you know, sometimes I do soil tests, sometimes I've done work for the client or they've had work done. And, you know, I even look down wombat holes out in the paddock to see the, the soil profile. You know, any burrowing animal, just look down there and go, what's going on down there? Save so you digging a hole. Yeah. Uh, but you need to understand the soil types that you're working in. Definitely, definitely. Now, what are some of the steps that, in your opinion, anyone could take to sort of better manage water on their landscapes? And that could include earthworks, like you mentioned, but mm -hmm. it could include things that are more accessible to everybody. Yeah, okay. Um, well, like if you just think, you know, urban, rural, whichever, but go to your property, uh, you know, if that's a, you know, urban backyard, um, if it's an urban backyard, for example, where does your water come off your roof? You know, where can you, you know, can you get access to wood chips? You know, what kind of biomass can you access? Because if you lay that out in a pattern, that impounds water, that holds up water, that builds soil. You lay a line of wood chips out on a contour pattern and, and look at the deposition that it creates behind it over time. Uh, so simple things like that is quite profound and it really it's quite marvellous, you know. Um, I, was, I was pulling something off my shed roof the other day and it, there was the soil that was built from eucalypt leaves over 12 months underneath the, the, the oil aluminium and the tin. So, you know, it doesn't take much. Who cleans their gutters out and realises how much material is in the gutter? Since you put water on a uh, passive uh, form, um, then it can drop everything it's carrying. It can, it can, you know, lay it out for you. So, it, you know, Earthworks doesn't have to be this huge, big job. You know, it's just probably a mindset or... or you know, as Brad Lancaster would say, plant the water, you know. And, and again, that can be get a, get a few sticks and lay them down in a specific pattern. It plants the water. Watch what uh, happens over time, you know, even a bare spot. Uh, you know, organics, uh, you know, gather around and silk materials, you know, manures, seeds, boom, life comes on. You know, it is really quite profound how simple it is. Take your driveway and... Take the water, because everyone's got a driveway, take the water and shoot it off into the landscape. Plant it in little deposition pits. Again, like use Brad Lancaster's work. That's a simple thing that you can do because we've all got driveways. Um, you know, obviously it's harder if we rent, but you've got you know, some space that you can work. Um, you know, it's not hard you know, and it's very rewarding work. Uh, to, to foster life, because that's what we're doing. And we're building a lifeboat, and that's what we need to do pretty smartly. Uh, um, we're here in Australia, you know, we're desertifying quick smart, and, you know, with the bushfires that we had last year, uh, you know, it's pretty important that we plant the water in this landscape uh, across the globe, you know, as we all know, it's in a, not a great area. Great situation, but you know we know that we can come back with positiveness too, um, and that that honestly is so simple 
you know, lay a stick down uh, on the edge of your driveway and watch materials gather behind it. And there's some real lessons there. It doesn't have to be complex. It doesn't have to be big. Um, we can do it with lots of different ways. No, not at all. And like you said, those patterns that open up, as you mm, observe, mm. they play out in these sort of microcosms, like you mentioned, in urban or suburban yep. lots. And they play out in macrocosms, like on yep. larger landscapes yep. and entire watersheds. Yep. And you don't have to go and get, you know, 20 acres in a rural area no. or more to be able to play with these forms and really maximize. In fact, one of the things that I've certainly learned in my own design experience and working on projects like this is that the smaller the place is, the more carefully you can curate and manage it. And the intensity and the focus that you can put on a small space will give you so much more yields than a huge space that you can't really micromanage in the same way. And there's real advantage in that. Absolutely, mate. You're absolutely. And, you know, my mind's too simple for the small space. I have to take the broader landscape because it's easier. Because, <laughs> <laughs> But it is all about patterns, absolutely, because that's all I do is I look at the landscape in a pattern form, look at the water in a pattern form, and then I apply a specific pattern to capture that energy. Or, a, or the surplus energy, you know, or, you know, a, an amount of that energy. But that's all it's doing is applying a pattern. And I don't mean that in any esoterical manner, you know. It's, it's, a, it's a very practical, physical thing. But observation, it starts back Absolutely. to that. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I cannot emphasise how, how important uh, observation is, you know. Uh, different times of day, you That's know. what it always all comes back it, to. It does, mate. Like different times of day, you see landscape differently. Get up in the morning, you know, middle of the day is actually really hard to see land, particularly in summer because if the vegetation is dried off, it's quite glary. Uh, a full moon is, you know, or a bright moon is really good to look at landscape because it's very soft and you can see shadow lines. Um, or, you know, early morning, late afternoon, is, is the times to look at landscape. Walk it, feel it, you know. Walk out there on a full moon and listen to the water. Feel the difference in temperature when you go from valley to ridge. Is there a nice thermal belt through that site? Because, again, that's observation, you know, and that can change your, you know, influences. And, again, that's a, the other interesting thing about adding water to the landscape is it, it, it's the... the most effective, you know, thermal mass, isn't it? So we regulate temperature. You know, we moderate the temperature yeah, extremes yeah, on the site when we plant the water, um, which is pretty cool where I'm from because I'm, you know, 300 kilometres inland. Uh, so we're in, you know, sort of we're a continental climate. You know, we get that climatic extreme of winter to summer. Um, so the more water I can plant here, the more moderate my climate's going to become. And I've already noticed the difference with trees, of course, but I, uh, I have three water bodies on my half an acre here um, and it's, it's changed how the cold air moves and where, where I get frost settling. You know, so that's a very interesting oh, sure, aspect. Sure. Um, but, you know, there's, there's a real pleasure. It's amazing you know, how they all interact, these different factors. And, <laughs> I mean, it's all connected, right? So totally. as you start to work on one element, it definitely affects others. And totally. as you sort of 
help the successional models along to mature, they sort of all support each other. Just like you were saying in the beginning, you take one step towards nature and it takes 10 steps, you know, towards you or. Yeah. Yeah. And it's really inspiring. It's very encouraging, I think, too, for people who are just beginning and who haven't studied this for a long time or haven't got a lot of experience. It's like, man, even just the fact that you're considering these elements and that you're taking the time to understand a bit about pattern and, and observe these formations and such, you're Absolutely. already doing so much better than most people who are making yeah. huge decisions for landscapes. And there's only really so yes. much you can fail when you have those things in mind. Your failures are still going to be a certain level of progress. Uh, absolutely, mate. Absolutely. It may be painful, but we, sometimes we need painful growth, you know. Um, yeah, look, absolutely. Yeah. Don't. Yeah. That's why I say start small, make, make small mistakes. Uh, you know, that, that's the, mm. the best way to do things, you know. Build your confidence up. Develop your observational skills. Absolutely. Yeah. But, you know, starting to understand it, it's fantastic that the people have taken the step. Yeah, yeah. Well, look, I think that's a good place for us to wrap up today. I can tell that we could go on for much, much longer and we see eye to eye on a lot of things here, but it's been fantastic to finally connect with you. I've been a fan of your work for a long time and I'm really glad too that you mentioned that project from Morocco. I'll try and share the link to the pictures on your website so people can see what you were talking about. I had a look at those myself. Okay, cool. Please uh, let me know, um, for our listeners' sake, where they can find out more information, get in touch with you, see your courses and previous work that you've got online. Uh, I've got a website, DocSpicePermaculture.com, Facebook page, uh, DocSpicePermaculture, um, and I've got Instagram, uh, DocSpice underscore permaculture. You can follow my work. I try to post something regularly when I'm out and about. Um yeah, you know, give us a call if you, you know, uh, need some assistance or, or need some advice. You know, I'm happy to help and inspire, you know, because we need people out there doing this. Even on that baby steps, small scale is absolutely fine and it's a great way to start. So please get to it, folks. Come on, we need you. <laughs> Perfect. Well, Doc, thank you so much for making time. Let's definitely catch up again sometime soon. Maybe we can explore more about rocket stoves and uh, yeah. I wish you the the best for the rest of your day and good luck in your future projects. Uh, Thanks. Take care. All the best. All right. That wraps things up for this week's episode. If you enjoyed this interview and want to find more like it, as well as articles and other resources, you can find the full library of previous podcasts at AbundantEdge.com. The best part is that you can search by category, topics, or keywords on our brand new website rather than scrolling through more than 140 interviews. I've spoken to experts on everything from growing your own food, building homes from natural materials, beekeeping, vermicompost, permaculture design techniques, and so much more. Before we go, I just want to say thank you so much to those of you who have taken the time to reach out to me via comments and emails. Your input helps a lot in making this show the open conversation and exchange of ideas that it's meant to be, and it helps me to make better content on the topics that you're interested in. If you have any insights, advice, suggestions, or questions, be sure to send them to me at info at AbundantEdge.com, and I'll look forward to being in touch. New episodes come out every Friday like clockwork, so don't forget to subscribe to the show through our website or through your favorite podcast streaming platform, and I'll catch you on next week's show.